The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. Welcome to the FDF podcast, Passionate About Food and Drink, sponsored by Clark Energy. My name is Emma Piercy and I lead on energy and climate change policy here at the Food and Drink Federation. I'm delighted to have with me today Keisha Avis from the consultancy firm Ricardo, where she works in the agricultural team. Hello, Keisha. Hello, Emma. Thanks very much for having me on today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's really nice to meet you. And we have met because we are recording this on Teams. Um, but I'd really love to start with just learning a bit about yourself. Um, tell me, how, how did you get involved in the food industry? Well, I suppose farming um, before food was has been was an interest of mine, even as a child. I spent quite a lot of time on, on people, other families' farms, and just uh, really loved that kind of connection with nature, with being outside. And then as the years went on, I then studied agriculture at university, um, w- worked in, in Brussels. And then I had um, I had some food allergies, which meant that I started having to pay quite a lot of attention to what I was eating. And that then developed into this absolute fascination with food and culture and how we grew it but also then how we why we ate what we ate how we Mm. ate what we ate um and then I did a bit of work in food waste which again you know has got cultural ramifications as well as business ramifications and all sorts of other things and then um my interest really turned to climate change and uh food from the field all the way to the fork has got such a massive connection with us as people but also with how people fit into the ecosystem of the world um, that I just find it fascinating. No, you're absolutely right. That that reminds me of a a key statistic that uh, we have in our FDF handbook for net zero, which sort of outlines, you know, the uh, carbon emissions associated with food consumed in the UK. And something like two thirds of those emissions come from the ingredients themselves. So, you know, I always say when I'm presenting that it kind of both demonstrates uh, the uh, impact that we have on the environment from food and drink, but the dependency we have on it. It's just just critical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I, I hear you, you have a small holding in, in Perthshire. Yes, I do. Um, my husband and I uh, were very lucky to be able to buy it. I mean, it's very small. It's like a small, small holding. Um, we have to start somewhere. <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, we've got some Jacob sheep, which is um, a rare breed, which we have actually got, well, we've been um, using for meat for the last seven years but this year is the first year we've actually got wool spun from their fleeces as well um we've got geese which we have sold uh for christmases for a couple of years uh chickens uh, and then i also grow a uh, veg and a lot of herbs herbs are, are my kind of passion um outside work well, well I, I'll definitely have to catch up with you about that separately because I'm, I'm having challenges with my runner beans and slugs at the moment. And any any advice will be great for you, but that will definitely be for another podcast. <laughs> but coming coming to our, our sort of um, you know specific topics today, um, you know, so you're now working at, at, at Ricardo, mm-hmm. and I know that the European Green Deal is is something that um, that I know you wanted to talk about. Um, Tell me, I mean, what is the European Green Deal? So I worked in in Brussels uh, for the National Farmers Union, actually, um, 15 years ago. And um, 
then people were starting to talk about climate change and the environment, but it was quite, I don't know, segmented. And a lot of what I, in my impression anyway, then was that European uh, legislation and regulation was quite segmented into different sectors and different um, ideas. But with the European Green Deal, this is where the strategy, there's, they've actually developed a strategy across all of the various bits of the European Commission and all of the various bits of the European Union to come up with one central way of approaching how we're going to deal with climate change. Mm. Because both climate change and environmental degradation are an existential threat to Europe and the world. That's what the European Commission have said. They really see it as a threat to long-term um, not just survival, but actually thriving, you know, within Europe. So to overcome these challenges, the European Green Deal, they hope, will transform the EU into a modern, resource efficient and competitive economy. So there's three kind of aspects to that. First and foremost is this issue about greenhouse gases. So from 2050 onwards, they don't want to have any net emissions of greenhouse gases. But this secondly, is, this, is, this is the yeah. net zero. Yes, so that's their, yes. Yeah, their version of net zero. Yeah. And then secondly, they want to decouple that economic growth from resource use because they, the European Union sees growth still as an important part of where they're going, but they want it to be decoupled from the impacts on the environment. So so just, just to clarify there, what is like where we are today or, you know, in the last decades, you know, it's the more the ec economic growth that we have, the more impact that we have on the environment. And as what you're saying there is that, yes, it, we want to continue growing, but we must uh, reduce our environmental impact. And as you say, kind of, you know, ha have those curves then going in the opposite direction, growing, and then environmental degradation declining. Precisely. So, so I mean, so. for example, energy is a prime uh, mm. example of that, where the more economic growth you have, the more energy you use. And if that's a fossil-based energy that produces more emissions into the atmosphere. But if you then are able to produce that energy from renewable use, you're still able to produce and grow the economy, but the emissions are vastly reduced mm -hmm. from that energy production. Um, so yeah, I think that's the easiest kind of one to to see the benefits of. But then thirdly, and I think this is really important, is that it's also about no person and no place left behind. So mm. it's about this being a journey that everyone needs to go on together. It's not It's about just being the people who are the most privileged in society who are then going to be able to get the benefits of it. It's about making sure that everyone, and actually the fact that they also say no place left behind, I think yes. is fascinating because so often it is actually rural areas that have been left behind in this, you know, development of the economy. Um, and, you know, that's where we grow, get our food from. Mm. Um, that's where so much of our nature and our biodiversity is. So the fact that that's being brought and is central to this new strategy is, is fascinating for me. And I mean, it's just really interesting because a few things I take from that, the how it relates to things like the levelling up agenda, um, mm. you know, getting equality across the regions. The fact that, you know, as you say about food and drink, it's in, in rural areas. Well, of course, you know, food and drink in manufacturing is is in every constituency across the UK. So uh, it's a perfect sort of tool to, to help with that levelling up agenda. And then the other phrase that comes to mind is um, a just transition you know, that we've talked about in the UK, how, how we fund, 
you know how we can make progress towards uh, net zero and, and making sure that this is not at the expense of uh, any any part of the community that you know everyone is brought along with it because i mean i mean i think one of the the phrases that comes to my mind and that i've been using quite a bit recently goes back to a 2010 report i think it was 2010 by nicholas stern when, when he talked about the costs of climate change and he said um the costs of inaction are greater than the costs of action so it's like you know we need to be talking about this more because i don't think necessarily everyone understands how critical this is you know, now. Well, absolutely. And I think the problem is that we often try and reduce this to just being an economic problem. Mm. But action actually involves us as people with all of our yes. emotions and our cultures and our ways of changing the way that we have done stuff or been told to do stuff in the past. Um, you know, it's about that... Uh, Again, it sounds a bit trite actually to call it behavioural change because it's not just about changing behaviours, mm. it's about changing the way that you see success, um, how you see progress. You know, all of these things needing, are needing to change and it, it needs a kind of a pulling apart. And I'm, it's fascinating, well, it's really interesting that you're comparing it to the stuff that we are um, dealing with in the UK as well because, of course, with Brexit... Uh, the Green Deal is is kind of happening on the other side of the water. But we have the same problems happening yes. both within the UK and in the EU. And actually, a lot of the time in this particular situation, we have some of the same ways of trying to deal with it. And I think I saw that um, as part of the new FDF trade and investment strategy, um, there is this you know, this really interesting argument that the UK should be championing regulatory cooperation on food and drink with mm. its most trusted trading partners. And the fact that we've got similar ideas and thoughts means that that will be, that will be a positive step. You know, that is something that we can, we can work towards. Definitely. Um, and I think, you know, we, I kind of I was going to mention it a few moments ago, but actually, you know, bring it up now. And I think, you know, that's with, you know, the war in Ukraine. I mean, how do you see the war in Ukraine impacting, you know, what's been discussed under the Green Deal? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good point because um, the European Green Deal came out of the COVID crisis as well as the climate and nature crises. And the Green Deal was kind of seen as a way of what we do next. And there's a massive concentration or pressure on making sure that nature um, and nature restoration was, was core to how we go, go forward. And that was through a variety of, of actions that have been suggested from the farm to fork strategy to the biodiversity strategy um, and all of the other actions that are within those because each of these strategies actually contain a, a myriad of different um, actions and regulations and mm. um, ways of making sure that action happens and once the Ukraine war started quite a number of member states said well, hang on a minute we can't be putting the environment this high up the agenda. We've got to be putting food and energy security mm. high up the agenda. And what this has meant is that quite a lot of the actions have been delayed. So the original 
timetable is definitely not where it where they planned it to be. But last month, on the 22nd of June, there was um, the Commission, the European Commission, published a range of proposals as part of that they had said that they were going to publish, you know, back when the Green Deal was uh, initially discussed. Um, and they published these core strategies, which were all about European nature, halving pesticide use. And these are the flagship legislative proposals to follow the biodiversity and farm to fork strategies, because the European Union or the European Commission see mm. them as key to ensuring resilience and security of food supply in the EU and across the world, but not just in the short term, in the long term. Mm. And I think the Ukraine war is is having horrendous um, repercussions. But my hope is that this is going to be more of a short term problem. But we've still got to get in place strategies to deal with these yes. longer term problems. So yes, it's delayed things, but it certainly hasn't stopped them. So it's a really interesting question because, you know, I, I've kind of had this discussion, you know, with uh, some of the stakeholders that, that I work with. And whether it's just me looking at it I'm not sure if positively is the is the right word to use, but I think yeah. Going back to that Nicholas Stone's comment that the costs of inaction are greater than the costs of action, we can see now we you know what's happening with food prices. You know, on a, on account of you know the, the war in Ukraine, you know, and the impacts that is having on you know uh, on, on food and fuel poverty, for example, mm -hmm. you know, and the the stresses that this is placing on supply chains. To me, and I know this maybe sounds a bit scaremongering perhaps but if we don't respond to these challenges of, of, of climate change and the impacts that it has on food production i think this is a sign of what what could happen you know we're seeing it already in, in terms of uh supply chains and you know that the challenges even you know this you know these next few days in england and and this this amber warning for for, for the heat waves a couple of nights ago, you know, I was watching the news and, you know, I was hearing about arable farmers in Norfolk and they're worried about, you know, are their crops going to make it through the summer? You know, water levels are, are, are really low. So, I mean, this is here and now and it okay, happens to be yeah. on top of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so I, I just kind of really, I, I, I hope in some ways that this can actually spur us into action, but... Yeah, I mean, do, do do you do you share some of that view, or do you, or do you think it's people are viewing it from a perhaps a slightly different perspective? I think the knee jerk reaction for a lot of problems is that you try and have a very reductive analysis of it, and you think, okay, well, how can I make this just become one problem? So, mm. the Ukraine is just a food security problem. Or sometimes, you know, even with the environment, or it's just a plastic, it's just a single-use plastics mm. problem. But all of these things are actually so interconnected. Yes. Um, and we, and this is one of the things that I'm quite positive about in terms of the Green Deal, because it's not trying to reduce it to just one thing. It's trying yes. to create a strategy to approach all of these problems at the same time. And um, which makes it quite complex and makes it difficult mm. to perhaps get your head around. Um, but it is a different way of thinking about these problems because they are multifaceted. And if we only try and solve one of the problems, we're not going to we're actually not going to get any further forward. Yeah. We need to try and do a lot of them at the same time. And I think what I'm what I'm really hopeful 
about is that the food issue in particular, or actually it even stretches to the fuel um, potential problems, is that there is so much waste in the system Yes, oh, for yes. both of them, yes. that if we are able to maybe deal with the waste better, oh, um, you, it might you, then yeah. help everything else. You, you're, you're completely right, because I think the phrase is something like, uh, I'll say phrase, uh, statistic, uh, is that about a third of food produced globally is wasted, yeah. and that accounts yeah. for 9 to 10% emissions. You know, even though, like in the UK, you know, about 70% of food waste happens in the home, uh, you know, there's 30% across the supply chain. And recent figures from RAP, you know, show that there is still a lot more that we can do to redistribute um, surplus. There is there's still more that, that, that we can do. Um, and so I, mean, I agree with you. And these things are, are no brainers when it when it comes to, you know, actually helping people with the cost of living struggle, um, but reducing the environmental impact as well. It, it is a win win. Uh, I, I agree. Mm. I, mean, I, I mean, I suppose that that touches upon a, a, a next question, which is, um, you know, when we when we talk about some of these issues, uh, what sort of advice would you um, give businesses? Uh, you know, in terms of perhaps what they uh, what they could be doing now, and in maybe what they need to think about more in future. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think part of this the, is about that thinking about the future, and obviously, there's so much going on at the moment that it can be difficult to kind of put your head up and look further forward. But that's where we feel we can really help businesses improve their long-term resilience. I think there's been so much focus up to now um, on what the consumer wants and what the consumer is demanding. And that has been, you know, driving the net zero or driving the um, lower plastics um, agendas, which is great. And, you know, we've got all sorts of customers who come to us to do life cycle analysis, for example, um, you know, so that they know through their supply chain um, from the field all the way to the fork where their emissions are happening so that they can, um, you know, show to their customers, this is where we're making massive improvements. And that has also made improvements to their bottom line because it's reduced the amount of energy that they're using, for example, or it um, has revealed other wastage within their system. So, you know, we have a number of clients that were already helping on that. But I think what the Green Deal is showing is that governments and regulation is now catching up with what the consumer has already been asking for. So businesses are now going to need to look inwards, first of all, to see, okay, where where are the wastes in our system? Where can yes. we make those improvements? But also do the external, okay, what is coming down the line? What are the things that we need to keep an eye out on? One of the great things, I mean, some people think it's awful, but I think it's quite great about the way that the European Union works is that things do take time. So it is possible for you to get your head around what's happening because there's enough time to do that. And we're actually doing that for the Food and Drink Association for Spain at the moment, looking at what is coming down the line in terms of regulation for their, for their members. And then next, you then need to understand how the regulations, when they come into play, are going to impact your business. And we've got a whole section within Ricardo that just looks at regulatory impact. Mm. And then finally, there's that 
what do we do with all that knowledge? We then need to put strategies into place to maximize the business advantages that are going to come out of these of these bits of regulation. Because, you know, sometimes it can feel really scary and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is awful. It's going to cost us a fortune. This is really bad for business. But I really believe that some of these strategies are looking so far down the line that it means that our businesses, our food and drink businesses, are going to be able to put resilience at the heart of them um, and then, you know, be able to be really great, successful businesses in the long yeah. term. So so I suppose in some ways, perhaps I would summarise what you're saying is that, you know, the is quite a good fit with with how the Green Deal is sort of dovetailing with the work that organisations already or that organisations are already doing on sustainability. Absolutely, um, and it's just about looking to see. Okay, well, are is what we're already doing going to fit with what the European Commission and the European Union is going to be asking us to do in the future? Mm. And if it's not fitting easily, why is that? Is it because we're actually doing something so innovative that, um, you know, maybe the European Parliament needs to know about it so that they can then put amendments into the various bits of legislation that are coming down the line? Or is it because we're using slightly different language and that needs to be more aligned? You know, it doesn't, it's not about, necessarily doing the wrong thing you could be very well doing the right thing and it's just almost getting it stamped to say yes you you're great you've you've already you're ahead of the curve but there are also another a number of companies who might not yet be on that sustainability journey and that may be for a number of reasons perhaps they're you know firefighting at you know dealing with all of the number of internal issues we've we've Mm. been having over the last couple of years and maybe this is the opportunity for them to kind of go okay right well there's regulation coming down the road we really do need to now start thinking about this Oh, absolutely. Um, so I've, I think we've got time for one last question. <laughs> um, so I suppose in some ways, when I when I you know reflect on what we've just been discussing, you know, to me a lot of this then is is focused around sort of sustainable procurement, and um, and I and I'm just wondering, you know, what would be your advice uh, to companies in terms of how to start looking. Um, at the sustainability of their of their procurement processes, and you know, what would what would you suggest, um, you know, as to how they could start looking at that? What would be the next steps to take? Well, I suppose the easiest way to look at sustainable procurement is if you look at who your suppliers are already and whether or not they've had LCAs done, whether or not they've um, you know had been through any certification processes because that that's quite a quick way of of mm. checking them out um i don't think though that that should mean that you limit your procurement to only those people who have already done it i think we have an opportunity across the supply chain to really support smaller you know perhaps they're farmers for example that you're getting your raw materials from um to if they haven't had the the institutional space within their own businesses to be able to do some of that certification that maybe the larger parts of the supply chain could support that. Um, Again, you know, that means doing uh, LCAs and it means doing um, a variety of kind of checks through the chains, which of course we can help with at Ricardo. Um, And, but that sustainable procurement, I think it goes both ways. 
it, mm. I really don't think it's just about an individual business doing all of the work and then just handing it over to whoever their customers are. I think it would be great if we could create like a, a community. And I, for me, climate change now, because of what is already happening, you know, so late, it's too late to stop some of the temperature rise. Yes. So to me, creating that resilience is actually all about creating communities. And we saw that through the food and drink supply chain in so many ways during COVID, um, you know, when different organizations were helping each other out to get, you know, be it, um, you know, when when the dairy farmers were struggling to get rid of, uh, to sell their milk or with the potatoes. Mm. And, you know, there were all sorts of really fantastic examples of organizations and the people within those organizations helping each other out so i think um yeah there's there's there are easy there are quick solutions to that procurement sustainable procurement answer but i actually think it's the slightly more complicated difficult ones that will win in the end well i i think that's a really good place to for us to to finish on and and th you know thank you keisha uh, so much for, for joining me today and indeed thank you to everyone who's listening um in terms of help and support around uh, the sustainability agenda case studies etc please do go on our website and also keep an eye out for our, our events page for webinars you can attend and we also have our next sustainability networking breakfast on 22nd september with the theme of procurement uh, so please do look on the website um, well, look, thank you once again, Keisha, and thank you all for listening. For Thanks, more Emma. You're very welcome. Uh, for more details uh, of forthcoming webinars, please visit the FDF website. The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy.